You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, happy Palm Sunday. You guys kind of have an idea of what Palm Sunday means. Anybody know what Palm Sunday means? Most of you kind of have a somewhat mysterious look on your face. Palm Sunday is the beginning of Passion Week. It is the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem the last week of his life before his crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection on the following Sunday. On that Sunday of Palm Sunday, it's called Palm Sunday because by this point, Jesus was quite popular. A lot of people knew who he was. He had been healing the sick feeding thousands of people, you know, raising the dead. They're like, man, this guy is the one who's a military leader who will who will use these superpowers of his and lead us as an army to overthrow the Roman government. They were they just knew he their idea of a messiah was someone who would save them from this world's government system and give them a nation back. So when he comes riding in to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, which means save us now. They're like, this is it. Man, he's riding in on this mule, which is symbolic of his Messiahship. He's riding in, and they're laying down palm branches in front of him as royalty. That's Palm Sunday. But the same people shouting Hosanna were shouting something completely different. Come Friday. Now, who is this Jesus that we sing about, that we pray about, that the Bible talks about? We worship him. A lot of us have a lot of things that we think about Jesus and a lot of said about Jesus, but I am going to use this here. But what we tend to do is we tend to make Jesus into our own creation. Like, who is this Jesus guy? So, you know, a lot of times we, we like to make Jesus into something that works for us. And this Jesus is someone who's basically, no, he's not a pressure. He's not, he doesn't really ask anything of us. He's just basically someone who gives stuff to us. So what we like to do is we like to make Jesus into somebody that's no threat at all because, well, he's not a threat to us. So what are some of the Jesuses that we look at? Well, right off, some of us, we like the, the cute baby Jesus. Remember you guys ever see Talladega Nights, right? Praying to sweet baby Jesus, you know, sweet, precious, cute, little, with little, doesn't even know he's alive yet, Jesus, you know. And it's hilarious. We played that clip before. But, you know, we like this. He's, you know, he's got the halo and he's he's totally dependent on his mother. And, and uh, you know, he's not, he's, he's no threat. He's just a baby. In fact, he needs you. That's the, be, uh, the Jesus, the baby Jesus that a lot of people like. It's the Jesus that really needs us, dependent on us. And then there's the, uh, there's the nice Jesus. The nice Jesus is the person who's like, you know, the, the, the social justice. We all just need to play nice. Everybody just need to be nice. Why can't we all just get along, Jesus? He's the, uh, you know, hug and high fives and, and no problems with us. Just be good, Jesus. He's the he's the nice guy Jesus. Some of you guys know that Jesus. He's, you know, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. He's nice. He's a good person. We like that Jesus because, again, there's no threat. And then maybe some of us, we like the hippie Jesus. We like the hippie Jesus because that's the pothead Jesus. And some of us, man, I like the hippie Jesus because, man, the hippie Jesus is cool. Man, he's got a bathrobe on all the time. He doesn't have a job. He's homeless. He leeches off everybody. 
Uh, he's homeless after all, you know, and he, he just crashes at friends' houses his whole life. And this Jesus, well, you know, um, he's cool and hip and he likes to smoke herbs and he's the naturalist. We like that Jesus, some people, because it gives us, again, an excuse to make Jesus into our own image. And then there's the handyman Jesus. The handyman Jesus is, you know, the Jesus that you go to to fix your stuff. You know, Jesus, my marriage needs help. So I'll go to church. I haven't been in church in a long time, but my marriage is going bad, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go to church. Or my kids, man, they're out of control. I don't need Jesus, but my kids do, right? So you go get your, to get your kids in church because they need help. And then there's the, you know, my marriage, my finances, my work, whatever. The Mr. Fix-It Jesus is the one that we often find at church. Or maybe for some of you, it's the Mr. Clean Jesus. Who's the Mr. Clean Jesus? Well, he's the Jesus that where you basically live like hell, but whenever you need a little guilt removed, you go to Mr. Clean. Hey, confess a few sins. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. So it gives you a license to live any way you want. Say a few prayers to the cross. You know, sign of the cross, a couple confessions. You know, he's got to forgive because he's Jesus. And Mr. Clean's got you good for another week until you feel guilty again. Some of us, we like to make Jesus into that person. And we also like to make Jesus into this kind of happy Jesus. Just the guy who's just... He's just a good, he's just happy. He's the one who's like basically leaning on the tomb, you know, with that grin like, gotcha devil, you know, you can't keep me down. And he's just happy. He's just, you know, no threat. That's the Jesus you go to on Easter and on Christmas. That's the, that's the casual Jesus who asks nothing of you. In fact, he just wants you to be happy. You see, what we've all done is we made Jesus into something that doesn't look anything like what the Bible says. A lot of us, we've made Jesus into these images that look like us and like what we want rather than the picture that the Bible paints, which is actually quite significantly different. In fact, the Bible gives us a picture of someone who says that he is God, someone who also says that he is man. He's fully God, fully man, that he does these miracles. He does signs and wonders. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. And then he dies on a cross and he, he's put in a grave and, and he rises from the dead. This is the Jesus that is painted by the Bible. And some see it that's, that it's unbelievable, that it's a myth, that, that it can't be true. And that, that somehow these, these ideas of Jesus are just, are just too big, too large, too, too, uh, you know, mythological to ever believe in. And we, we, they just toss us with the other religions of the world. I want to tell you, the New Testament's most reliable document in the history of the world. Over 23,000 manuscripts, pieces, and whole documents of the Bible are found. It's the most complete and most uh, historically reliable document that tells us about a historical figure of the ancient times. So what is this Jesus all about? Well, the Bible gives us four versions of his life. They're called the Gospels, and the Gospel means good news. Now, let me tell you something. If I had everybody pull out a piece of paper and write down, uh, you know, if it was an experiment, I said, everybody write down uh, what happened when you walked in the door this morning, okay? Some of your stories would be the same, and some of the, your stories would be completely different because some of you talked to different people. Some of you saw different people. Some of you saw somebody that somebody else didn't see. Some of you heard something that somebody else didn't see. Or maybe you came in late and some of you could say, well, there, we sang one song. But some of you were here early and you said, we, we sang three songs. Or, you know, some of you would know the announcements. Some of you, you're, you there's announcements. <laughs> it's funny. Sometimes we'll talk about things. What, we're doing that? Yeah. 
Where'd your worship guide? There's things going on, but we all have these different eyewitness accounts. And the Gospels tell us different eyewitness accounts of the exact same events. Four eyes giving us four perspectives of the same events. They're not contradictory. They're just different because we have different eyes with different approaches of what we remember and what's important to us. These four pictures of the life of Christ have similarities but also differences, as each one portrays a different perspective from that person. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four people writing for four different reasons, confirmed eyewitness accounts. Well, Mark, uh, Matthew, let's start with Matthew. Matthew was writing primarily to Jewish people. And so he quotes the Old Testament more than anybody else of the other four, uh, of the four total of the other three. He's writing to Jewish people Proclaiming to them that Jesus is our Messiah. And then you have Mark. Mark is interesting because he's writing to non-Jewish people. He's writing primarily to Roman people. He's writing to people that maybe have never heard anything about the Old Testament, knowing nothing about Genesis. So he paints a gospel of Jesus that is filled with action and miracles, sprinkled with some teaching, but primarily focusing on Jesus being king. You see, while the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, Matthew said Jesus is it. And while the Romans were looking for a king, Jesus, Matthew, uh, Mark says, is it. And then you have Luke. Luke, uh, believed to be the, the transcribed story uh, of Paul, focuses on the Gentiles. That's those that were possibly aware of, of the Jewish traditions, but were Gentiles by nature. And so Luke was a gospel, uh, a doctor. And so a lot of this gospel is filled with details, uh, eyewitness accounts, and he's writing about Jesus who is our Savior. And then you have John. John's totally different. He writes his the latest. And John is writing to Christians, and he's giving a deep theological perspective with hand, uh, uh, handwritten eyewitness accounts from his journal, giving us information right down to the minutes and times that none of the other gospels have. And he's telling the Christian, listen, Jesus is God. So you have four accounts giving four perspectives, giving us one view of who Jesus is, that he is the one. Mark, uh, believed to be the, the writings of Peter, starts off his gospel in Mark 1, 1 with this. He says this, right off the top, big claims, Mark 1, he says, the beginning. Does that sound like Genesis 1, 1? In the beginning, that's how Mark begins. He's immediately echoing parts of Genesis. He says, this is the beginning of the good news. The good news means life-altering news. This isn't news like you, uh, you know, you got a raise today or a news that, hey, you know, it's going to be sunny and you're hoping to go outside. No, this is life-altering, life-changing, turning the world upside down. This is the beginning of life-changing news. And it's good news about Jesus. The name Jesus in Hebrew means God our Savior. And to the Gentiles, in Greek, his name means God who is our healer. So he's saying this is the life-changing news of our Savior and healer, the Messiah. The word Messiah there is Christos, which means the royal awaited one. The royal promised king. This is the story. This is the beginning of the king, the true story of the king. And then he says, the son of God. This isn't just a man. This is God in the flesh. This is the true story 
of the true king. Mark says that Jesus is not just a historical figure, but a king of all. And he says, I'll prove it. And so he packs his gospel with miracle, 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 miracle. He says, you don't believe it? Let me tell you what I saw. Let me tell you what we saw. Let me tell you what eyewitnesses saw. Colossians 2, chapter 9, Paul says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. When Jesus showed up, God himself walked onto the scene. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, when, when history had reached the point that God had ordained for Jesus to come, when the time had come, when it was fulfilled for it to happen, God sent forth his son, that means God in the flesh, born of a woman. You know what that means? That means Jesus didn't show up as a ghost. He didn't show up at 30 30 years old and walk on the scene and go, hey, everybody, I'm God. He wasn't an apparition. The Bible says he was born of a woman. That means God went through the entire process of conception to death. God lived our life fully and completely born of a woman, born under the law. That means the same restrictions of the, of the religious rules and laws of, the, of their faith to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus died for you to become a child of God. Listen, if you're not born again, the Bible says you are not a child of God. You know, I often ask this in our living the way, is everyone a child of God? And it's kind of, a, oh, I don't know. It's a tricky question. It's, we're not. We're not all children of God. We are all loved creations of God. But you become a child of God when you acknowledge and understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You become a child of God. He says, I've come that you might receive adoption. Jesus is the Redeemer. Let me explain what redemption is. We actually reached this talked about this in, in our Living the Way this last week. Uh, it's a financial term, and it means a purchase. It means uh, a debt that has been paid for or purchased. The best way that I can explain this is through a coupon. Let's just say that you liked Burger King. Maybe you don't. doesn't matter. Let's just say you got a coupon that says, free, no purchase necessary, coupon at Burger King. All right? I'm going to redeem that. All right, I'm going I'm to turn that in, and I'm going to get me a free hamburger. But you decide you're going to go to McDonald's. Is it going to work? Okay, what if you decided to go to Wendy's? Is it going to work? What if you decided, you know what? I'm going to take this coupon. I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. Is it going to work? You wish it did, right? Everybody wishes you'd get free food at Chick-fil-A. Where's the only place that coupon's going to work? In the hands of its creator, fulfilling its purpose in which it was created for. You can only redeem that coupon in the hands of its creator. Let me tell you something. This is what the cross did. The cross was a purchase for us. You see, we live our whole life trying to find purpose and meaning outside of the created purpose for our life. I tell you something. That coupon outside of Burger King is trash. It's garbage. It has no value. But in the hands of its creator, it becomes valuable and important and redeemable. We live our whole life trying to find purpose and meaning outside of our creator. And our sin separates us from understanding and knowing that purpose and mission and who God is. But here comes Jesus. I'm going to pay for you. I'm going to buy back all those worthless coupons. And if you'll come to me, 
if you'll get aligned with the purpose that I created you for, you become valuable in my hands, become valuable in my life. So he has redeemed us. He has purchased us. Uh, Another way of looking at it would be a car restoration using original parts. You know, he says, man, I'm not going to use something that the world tried to create. I'm going to go back to the creator, and I'm going to put the real, the the, the original parts back in. I'm going to restore it to its original purpose. This is what the cross does. This is what our redeemer is. When the Bible talks about redeemer, this is what it's saying. My redeemer, the way he arrived was unlike anything they expected. They expected an earthly king, but he gave them the king of kings. They expected a king that would give them a government, but God gave them a kingdom of heaven, an eternal kingdom. It was not what they expected. Let me tell you a little bit about his arrival. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, your attitude, that means your mindset, the way that you look at life should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. See, what we like to do is we like to make Jesus into our image, but you know what the Bible says? It really comes down to are you willing to let Jesus make you into his image? Are you going to allow God to mold you and shape you and perfect you and change you and strengthen you? See, right off the top, when it starts to talk about the, the life of Jesus in Philippians, he says it, it comes down to are you willing to let Jesus to make you into his image? So it goes on. He says, your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, that means Jesus is God. He's not sort of God, kind of God, became God. He is full of God, has always been God. He is the very nature of God. He is God, who Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That word grasp is a controversial word and means to abuse or manipulate. Jesus was God, but when he came to earth, He did not use that to control, manipulate, or abuse us, though he could have. God Almighty, his mindset was humility. I want you to write this down. My Redeemer brought humility in his birth. I mean, how would you expect the creator of all that we know that ever existed in the the world, in the universe, how would you ever expect the king of all creation to arrive? I'll tell you. Not in an animal bowl wrapped as a baby burrito. I would not have expected the king of kings to come so humbly. Philippians 2, 6 says, Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or abused, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That word is incarnation. That's basically, what's incarnation? is God concarni. It's God with meat. You know, if you go to a Mexican restaurant, you get like a aval enchilada concarni. That means you get the cheese enchilada with meat sauce on it, right? Jesus is God in meat. He is God in the flesh. He is the incarnation. I want you to write this down. My Redeemer, however, his humility was also in his humanity. Think about this. It says this, but made himself nothing. I'm going to give you a theological term. There's a word there in the Greek, made himself nothing. The word there is kenosis, and that means emptying of himself. It means he made himself of no reputation. It means he gave up everything and poured himself out. He deprived himself. He did not become less God. That would be impossible. But what he did do is he said no to the rights of God so that he 
could experience our humanity in its fullness. He deprived himself of many of his rightful powers and abilities. He held them back so that he might experience what it is to be you. He emptied himself, the kenosis of Christ. It's a, it's a miracle of the incarnation. Jesus humbly emptied himself, became a lowly servant, making himself nothing for his own creation. God took on human flesh, taking on flesh not for 33 years, but for the rest of eternity. The, the king became a pauper for us. I want you to write this down. My redeemer, he also has humility in his life. As a teenager, the God of all creation who breathed life into his creation, who said, let there be light and, and gave uh, marriage and, and, and gave the ability for us to have children, the creator of all things, submitted himself to his earthly parents. He never sassed his mom. He never said, mama, you don't know who you're talking to. I am your authority. <laughs> Some of you teens would love to say that, wouldn't you? He never asked his parents. He never was disrespectful. But he humbly submitted to his earthly parents because in his humility, he was giving us an example of how to live. In his teaching, he always taught that the greatest in the kingdom is the least. The people who want to be in front, if you want to be in the front, in my world, you got to be in the back in this world. His actions, often serving the poor, serving the sick. I mean, think about it. He washed the feet of his disciples, which is one of the lowliest jobs of the lowest servant in the house. This is a culture that did not have closed-toed shoes. This was a culture where everybody wore open-toed shoes and everybody walked. And they didn't have street cleaners. It was filthy, it was dirty, it was nasty. And some of you guys, you wear socks and you clean your feet every day. And guess what? You still got nasty feet. Some of you guys have good-looking feet, and some of you, you know who you are. Your feet are nasty. Some of you, not so bad, but here's Jesus. He didn't say, all right, guys, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to wash your feet. Everybody, and then he gets over Bartholomew. <sighs> man, I'm going I'm to pass. <laughs> I'm going to pass on you, man. No, he washed his disciples' feet. He humbled. This is the creator of the very dirt in which we are made out of. And he cleaned the dirt off his disciples' feet. In his life, he displayed humanity, uh, humility. And in his example, the one who is without sin submitted himself to baptism, which is a picture of our forgiveness of sin. Three of the four Gospels record his baptism. Mark chapter 1 verse 9 gives it this way. It says, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That John there, you might know him as John the Baptist. And it was Jesus' cousin. It was his mother's aunt's son. So John was baptizing in the Jordan and Jesus shows up. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water, out of the water, yes, baptism is immersion. It's full, under, full, out of the water. We do immersion baptism here. It's a picture of what we see in the Bible. So as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven, John the Baptist did, and those around him saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Now the word descending there literally is the word hovered. And there's only one other place in the entire Bible where this picture of the Holy Spirit shows up. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, And the Spirit 
of the Lord hovered over the face of the deep. Before creation began, the Spirit was there at the beginning. It says, and a voice from heaven came, and it says, you're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now this is one of those dynamic pictures where you see the Trinity in action, all present at the same time, miraculously in one event. And what's unique about this is Mark is pointing us back to creation, that God, God's word, Jesus, and God's spirit are all there. All present at work in creation as as the work of creation unfolds, and all present at Jesus' baptism as the work of redemption unfolds. Jesus' arrival was a new beginning, a new start, a new day, a new dawn for the Redeemer had come. Back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says, But... Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It cost him everything. The cost of the incarnation was his life, to be human and to endure the cross. Jesus, my Redeemer, His humility was in his birth, was in his humanity, was in his life, and his humility is displayed in his death. He humbled himself and allowed himself to feel every blow of those nails into his hands and into his feet. And every whip of that lash upon his back and every rod upon his head, he allowed himself to feel every single hit an embarrassing and incredibly torturous death, the most terrible imaginable. Imagine this, the very Jesus who put ears back on a person's head. Hey, man, you dropped something. (laughs) Peter sliced off an ear. Jesus said, hey, settle down, man, and put it back on him. Those that were with leprosy, whose skin was rotting off, he began to touch them as they were made whole. Those who'd been blind their whole life, he gave them sight. And he showed up at the grave of his friend and said, Hey, quit napping. Come on out of the grave. And Lazarus came alive. The very God of all creation allowed himself to experience every mind-numbing pain that you can imagine in your life. Think about it. God could have said, Get this done with already. Is that all you got? Like a Superman. He ain't got nothing, right? He could have have bounced off the pain. He could have sat there and endured everything as if he gave himself these godlike painkillers. But no, he chose to engage into the pain and suffering of our life. Taking on every blow, every painful hit, every driving nail for our sake. In his death, he displayed incredible humility. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, his unmerited favor. Philippians 2 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the exaltation. You have the incarnation, Jesus in the flesh. You have the crucifixion, the redemption of mankind, and you have the exaltation, the name that is above every name. Every person in this room will bow their knee to Jesus Christ one day. And if you haven't yet, today's the day. Because you can bow now as a friend of Jesus, or you will bow later when this life is over as a foe of Jesus. He's a good king. He's a good dad. To fully understand Jesus' final miracle before the resurrection, I want to take you to his first miracle. It's in John chapter 2. My Redeemer's arrival of the miraculous is an amazing picture of his life and our life. It's a picture of salvation. So John chapter 2, we're going to pick up with a story that's actually quite controversial. And then we're going to have communion here in a little bit. In John chapter 2, Jesus was recently baptized. He had some disciples and friends that were starting to follow him. Uh, Days later, uh, somebody uh, close to the family is having a wedding. And they're all invited. And uh, Jesus is there. John chapter 2 verse 1, it says... On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. We find out later that his mother was possibly the coordinator because she took an active role in some of the preparations, possibly a family connection. Some even believe that this might have been the wedding of one of Jesus' siblings. Verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Can Jesus, can you run to the liquor store and keep this party going, right? A lot of people, they read this and like, man, this is my favorite story in the whole Bible. This verse, I just a little footnote to this verse. This story sparks a lot of debate. Here's a few thoughts on this. The wine literally means fruit of the vine. It means uh, wine. So it's like, well, it obviously wasn't alcoholic. It probably was alcoholic. But it's important to remember this, that wine in ancient times had a lower alcohol content. While we oftentimes drink wine uh, for enjoyment and we have other means of nourishment and water, in the ancient times it was a necessity for everybody almost to drink wine, children and adults. And, and so water was not something that could easily come by, so they went through it a lot, and their wine uh, was not as high of a level of alcohol content. It was a common drink. Um, it was alcoholic. The Bible does not condemn alcohol consumption, but it does condemn drunkenness. The Bible makes it very clear that that is not God's plan for you, that we are not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means don't be under the influence of a other substance, but be rather under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So this is the situation here. A lot of times we like, well, man, this is about the party, Jesus. Whoop, whoop, right? We like the party, Jesus. Again, that's one of the, the things we make. I want the Jesus that turns the water into wine because he always keeps the party going. This is not really about the wine, okay? This is actually a picture of our salvation in this story. I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus chose this to be his first recorded miracle. It's not clear what his mother had in mind maybe to do something to calm the crowd or maybe to take collection to maybe do uh to purchase more to make a run or perhaps she sensed a miracle this is what jesus responded she said jesus we're out of wine what do we do and jesus responded woman why do you involve me the word woman might seem harsh woman who are you to talk to me actually woman is a very polite term used it means ma'am but however 
It's not used often when you talk to your mother. And so he was talking to her politely, but you see that this is the beginning of a suggested change in their authority relationship. So he says, woman, why do you involve me? Basically, what does this have to do with me? And Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. That means it's not time for me to reveal myself. Perhaps he thought maybe he could do a miracle or do something. He says, the time has not come for me to make this a big story yet. So his mother goes, do whatever he says. She says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. And then walks off. I think that's funny. It's often like a mother. Mother, it's not my time. Oh, you will do the dishes. I expect when I get home, those dishes to be done. Here's Jesus. Mother, woman, it's not my time. Do whatever he says. He's doing something, right? So it was not his time to reveal himself, but he turned it into a teachable moment to teach his disciples behind closed doors what salvation is. This is what happened. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water uh, jars or jugs. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, these were jars crafted crafted for a divine purpose, but yet they were empty and unused. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they are filled to the brim. All the way full. Nothing left, no space. Basically, they hauled in about 150 gallons of water. Back and forth to the well. We don't know how long it took, but they filled these six jugs with 100 and 50 gallons of water. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. Remember, this was a backroom secret. For the eyes of the servants and the disciples only. And then he called the bridegroom and said, man, everyone brings out the choice wine first when the cheaper wine uh, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink or when they've had enough. Basically, this means, man, they bring out the bitter, nasty, yucky tasting wine up front and then they bring out the nice, smooth tasting, the good stuff later on. This, again, it's not about alcohol content. This is about what tastes good and what's, what's, uh, what's expected culturally. He says, but you've saved the best last. I love this. By the way, Jesus is the living wine, and he's always going to be better than the rest. Verse 11 said, what Jesus did here in Cana, John says, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, up to this point, He was just the guy that John the Baptist said was the Lamb of God. He'd been baptized. Maybe they, John had talked a lot about him. So they're just kind of, hey, Jesus, what you doing? Where you going? What you up to? What you, you know, teach us something. They're just following Jesus. They're just getting to know Jesus. They hadn't seen nothing yet. They hadn't seen a miracle. He hadn't, he hadn't healed a single person yet. But right here, right now, his disciples, who were following Jesus as a teacher and rabbi, all of a sudden they began to believe that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is that promised Messiah King. And they began to believe. So in front of his disciples, his first miracle gives us the plan of salvation. Well, how's that? Well, let me explain to you. We are the jars of clay. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, we ourselves are like fragile clay jars. And how many stone jars were there? There were six. Who was created on the sixth day? 
man. The number six in the Bible is always a picture of the creation or a picture of man. While seven is a picture of perfection and a number of God, six is always a picture of man. So these six clay jars represent us made from dirt, imperfect and empty. But like the jars, number two, it tells us that we are created and crafted with a divine purpose. These jars that they used were ceremonial jars created for a specific purpose to honor God. To be holy and righteous, to be used for God's glory. But yet they sat in a corner unused and empty. Listen, God loves you, created you with a divine purpose. He crafted you with with meaning and with value. But many of us, we deny God's mission and purpose for our life. Created to honor God, set apart to know his plan. Third thing this story tells us that we must recognize that we are empty before him. A lot of us think we don't need God. You know what Jesus said? If you think you don't need me, guess what? You don't. I haven't come for you. He says, those of you that think you're well, I'm not here for you. I'm for those of you that think you're sick. Unless you realize you're a sicko, you will never know Jesus. You must recognize that you are empty. Jesus said, I have come for the sick. I've come for the broken, a broken and contrite heart. Those that are hurting, that's who I have come for. We must recognize that we are empty before him. Martin Luther said this, God created the worlds out of nothing. As long as we are nothing, God can make something out of us. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You must be nothing. You must decide to be the last, most important person in the room. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, the one who is walked on and used by others. Even as the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's redemption. Here's the fourth thing this story tells us, that we are to be filled with the cleansing power of God's Spirit. See, that water that fills those empty jars represents the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. As we are washed clean through the recognition of what Christ has done for us, as we are washed clean, we are filled with His Spirit to the brim. And this is a beautiful picture that God's Spirit is the water that we are to be filled with. And when this happens, transformation begins. Because look what happened. The fifth thing is this, is that when we are poured out, miracles happen. When did the water become wine? When it was poured out. When it was emptied. When it was used by the master. When we empty ourselves and humbly submit to Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit of God. And when God pours us out, like in this story, you become fruitful. Resulting, and I love this in the story, the master of the house was like, whoa, this is awesome. The master was honored. And the master immediately went to the groom and said, wow, you've saved the best for last. And the groom gets the glory. I love this. When we are poured out before God, the master and groom Jesus gets the honor and the glory when we allow God to pour us out. Guys, listen, in this first miracle of Jesus. We have the story of salvation. We have the plan of salvation. As God expects us to be poured out, he poured himself out for us. Let me tell you about our Redeemer who poured himself out for us.
recorded in the four Gospels, eyewitness accounts record these things. That Jesus was first betrayed by a friend. One of the disciples, his name was Judas. He'd been with them from the early days. After that last meal together, Jesus and some of his disciples went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane at Jesus' request, but Jesus knew that his time was coming and it had come. Now, they didn't have photographs, and when Jesus went to the authorities to turn Jesus in, perhaps he had a good heart. Perhaps he wanted to see more out of Jesus. Perhaps he, he wanted to see Jesus, who was not a, a, a passive person who was going to lay down his life, but maybe he wanted Jesus to fulfill the mission of a Messiah and overthrow the government. We don't know what his purpose or his heart was, but he went to the authorities and said, you don't know what he looks like. They're all wearing garments and all have beards, but I'll tell you, I'm going to kiss Jesus and you'll know that it's him by my kiss. And it was a kiss that betrayed him. As he took the soldiers in that garden of Gethsemane that night, Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek and they immediately seized him and arrested him. It was about one o'clock in the morning. What followed, he was dragged through a series of seven illegal court trials. Three of them before the sun even rose. Between Pharisees, Sadducees, and the tribunal of the Jewish court system. Against their own laws and traditions, they began to condemn and stack the deck against Jesus. They began to beat him and flog him. They hit him with rods. The Bible says that they took their hands and they pulled his beard right out of their face in chunks. They hit him and punched him in the face. They began to punch him and say, Who's hitting you now? Who's hitting you now? Who's hitting you now? And they began to beat and flog him, dragging him through the court. Once the sun was up, they took him to Pilate and said, Pilate, this man claims to be a king. He wants to overthrow the government. You should kill him. Pilate's like, I'm just the governor of this area. You need to take it to the local authority. King Herod is more like the mayor of Jerusalem. So after this trial with Pilate, he's taken to Herod. Herod says, who are you? Do a miracle. I've heard all about you. Do a miracle. Jesus said nothing to him. And he says, I want nothing to do with you. And sent him back to Pilate. At this point, Pilate was confused. He didn't see anything wrong with this man. Though he was confused by the whole thing. So he thought, maybe if I just beat him enough, the people will be satisfied. So he took him to the courtyard And he strapped him to a pole. And Pilate ordered Jesus to be flogged just short of death. As he was beat and whipped and lashed again and again and again with leather rods, with metal and bones attached. As it was clawing and ripping his back, he became like hamburger meat. He was sent back to Pilate, pulverized, unrecognizable. And he still could not understand why they wanted him dead. But they had a yearly tradition where they would release a prisoner. And so he brought him before the crowd. And they brought a prisoner named Barabbas. And they said, who do you want, Jesus? Or do you want Barabbas? Now something interesting about this Barabbas guy, maybe you've heard his name. His name literally means son of the father. Bar means son, Abba, father. Barabbas' name is son of the father. Jesus is son of the Father. And so as he stood before the crowd, he says, Who do you want? Do you want Barabbas? Or do you want Jesus? 
And the crowd were so angry that Jesus was not the Messiah they were hoping for. And the Pharisees began to rile up the crowd that they began to shout, We want Barabbas! Barabbas! So they released Barabbas. What should I do with this man then? And they began to shout the same voices probably on that Palm Sunday that were shouting, Hosanna! Began to shout, Crucify! Crucify! So they took Jesus. crammed a crown of thorns and mockery on his head as he was some kind of king. And as was the custom, he was sentenced to death that day with other criminals, carrying his own cross as far as he could, being up so early and gone through so many beatings, he could only make it halfway. They pulled a man out of the crowd to carry it the rest of the way. They made it to a place called the Skull, Gagatha, Calvary. And at that moment, they began to nail his hands to that cross. And Jesus receiving and experiencing every painful blow, every spit of that crowd. And they nailed spikes into his feet. And they stripped him naked and set him up for the world to see in the mock. See, we often see Jesus with this cloak of garment around his waist. That's just Hollywood. In real life, they were stripped naked. It was humiliating. He was a bloody mess. The creator of all. Humiliated and broken and bruised. Allowing himself to embrace every single bit of pain that was thrown at him. First Peter 1.18 says... For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus was poured out. The greatest miracle of all time took place, the forgiveness of sin. Some of you, you hear this and you think, well, that sounds amazing, but I don't know if he could forgive me. Well, there are seven wounds that give us a picture of our complete forgiveness through him. But Ted, you don't understand. I'm so ashamed. I can't even look to Jesus. I'm so ashamed of the things that I've done. I'm just so ashamed. Jesus says, my face was punched My beard was pulled out. My face was abused for the shame in your face. You said, but you don't know the things that go on in my head. The things that I think about, the experiences that I have in my mind. I I have so many dirty thoughts. There are things that I remember that I just can't get out of my head. And Jesus says, those crown of thorns were crammed. Those three-inch thorns were pressed into my skull so that you could have forgiveness for those thoughts but you don't understand I've turned my back on him I, I, I claimed to give Jesus my life when I was a kid or when I was a teen and man I've been wandering all these years I've been running from my back is turned but Jesus says it's okay because my back was torn for you it was shed for you I was beaten I was ripped apart for you blood flowed so that those of you that turned your back on him could find 
forgiveness. But Jesus, you don't know about the things that I've done. The things that I put my hands to do that I should never have done. The doors that I have opened to destruction into my life. The punches that I have made and the hits that I have done to those that trusted me. You don't understand. And Jesus says, I do because my hands were nailed to the cross for the things that your hands have done that you are so ashamed of. For the things that we've done that we regret. But Jesus, my feet have gone places. Sometimes I've even stood in places where there was injustice and I've done nothing. Sometimes I was there when those that I loved were being hurt and I did nothing. Sometimes I went to places and was a, a, an audience to things that I should never have seen. And Jesus says, for the places that you've gone, my feet were nailed to that cross. Seven wounds, one the face, two the head, three the back, four and five the hands, six and seven the feet. Seven times, seven places, perfection, unparalleled, unmatched, unsurpassed, unequaled, unending forgiveness. And when the moment had come, Jesus cried out, it is finished, which means paid in full. The redemption has been made. The ransom has been paid. The debt is fulfilled. Most crucifixion victims die a slow, horrible death of dehydration, blood loss, infection, asphyxiation, insanity, and wild animals as they come to gnaw on them over the course of several days, but not Jesus. His body was not to be dishonored, and when the payment was full, he chose to lay down his life. For his last words on this planet were into your hands, I commit my spirit. His life was not taken, his life was willingly given. Don't ever forget this. His life was given freely for you. His blood was poured out. How do I know this is true? Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. You see, that piece of wood, that symbol... History has idolized it, despised it, gold-plated it, burned it, worn it, trashed it. But to us, it is redemption. It is life-giving salvation. How do I know it's true? How do I know it's not a myth? Because three days later, he came alive. He's alive. He walked this earth again. He hugged his family. He had dinner with his friends. He is alive. That's how we know it's true. In the cross, there is redemption. Through the resurrection, it's proof. It's proof. So I have two questions for you today. Two questions. What we tend to do as we make our own version of the cross, one that's a little bit easier to accept, I'm going to tell you something. I'd rather have the real cross. I'd rather have the real cross. 
What cross are you making? Will you allow Jesus to shape you and mold you into his image? And that's the second question. Will you put your hands in the hands of Christ to shape you? Will you do that? The Bible tells us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. If we will humble ourselves and let him work in us, he'll make us this beautiful jar and pour us out for his beautiful purpose. But you know what happens when Plato's left out? When it's unused, it becomes dry, it becomes hard and unusable and gets thrown away. Don't go there. Humble yourself before the Lord as he humbled himself to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are working in us your transformation. And God, I pray that you would take these moments of, 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 of realization of what you have done for us and that you, we would embrace the meaning of what that means for our life and our redemption. That you have asked us to humble ourselves as you have humbled yourself. And as you have poured yourself out, God, Lord, we recognize we are empty to be filled by you, to be poured out to the world around us. Father, I pray that you would change us from the inside out right now in Jesus' name. Here in just a moment, we're going to have a time of communion and worship. And here's what I would like for you guys to do during our time of communion. Uh, We're going to play a video, and then immediately after the video, our worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And when that worship begins, I want to invite you to make your way, uh, maybe a section at a time, or you can just wait until everybody's done. But uh, there's a communion table upstairs, too, so you don't have to come downstairs. But make your way over to the table. There's two elements at the table. There is a fruit of the vine, and there is a, a piece of bread. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, He had this last meal with them. It was a picture of the Passover meal, but he gave it new meaning. And he says, this is now, this bread is, is," he says, my broken body, which is broken for you. And then he says, in this this wine, he says, "This this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, do this often and remember me every time you do it. So what we're gonna do now, we practice open communion here at Living Way. And that is, if you are a Christian, If you are in a relationship with God and you are a follower of Jesus, then you are welcome to participate in communion with us. If you're not, I respect you. And if you just want to sit where you are and just contemplate what's happening around you and really search your heart about what God's doing in your life, I will totally respect that. There is no pressure for anyone to participate in communion. But if you are a Christian, I invite you to come to the table and remember what Christ has done for you. And as you get that bread and you get that wine, I encourage you as a family to huddle together as a husband, uh, as, a, as children, uh, or as a friend, or if you're by yourself, perhaps as yourself, a moment of contemplation. Just ask God to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you. And then remember that his body was broken for you and you take that bread. And then you thank God for that blood that was shed for you and then you drink that fruit of the vine. And then you worship a God who is a redeemer of those who will humble themselves.
God, thank you so much that you're with us this morning. We will recognize and remember what you have done in our life through this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.